flipping over to the New Testament, again to the book of Titus. As we're finishing up our time in Titus this week and next week, we come now to Paul's final instructions to Titus to pass on there to the island of Crete, to God's people there. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. 8 through 11. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, this week as I was preparing my sermon on these selected verses here in verses 8 through 11 of Titus chapter 3, thinking about how Paul is emphasizing that message that he has told to Titus to pass on to God's people there in all the cities on the island of Crete. I remembered how the message that Paul preaches here is not one that is radical. It's not one that is revolutionary. It is simply a call for God's people to be a faithful people in their context. As mothers, as fathers, as grandparents, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as employers and employees, as elders and deacons and church members, all these spheres in which we live, Paul has called God's people simply to be faithful. He has simply called them to respond to the gospel of God in this way. Present yourselves a living sacrifice to your Lord. And so it's a message that is very simple, but also very crucial for the Christian life. And then during the evening, as I was laying in bed reading uh, a book about Vienna, Austria in the mid-1800s, I was reading about all the grand things in which the city was beholding. They had before them in the mid-1800s a, a great movement of the waltz dance. It changed the world and all of music as we know it. Academically, the best universities were there drawing many serious students to their cities. And medically, they were advancing leap and bounds over all the other known world. And yet, the author was pointing out that there was a stain upon all the grandeur there in Vienna, Austria. Because what happens around the year of 1840, something is glaringly wrong with what was happening within that city. And here's what it was. That women were coming in to have children. They were coming in to have babies to deliver, but one out of every six women who came into their hospitals there in Vienna, were dying. And no one could wonder why. It was 
uh, it was one of those things in which all the doctors and nurses began to try to figure out, and yet these women continue to pass away in child delivery. It was not until another, another doctor, a, a Swiss doctor, as a matter of fact, comes in and he's put in charge of the maternity ward in 1844, and he begins to carefully watch and monitor everything that's going on within his division. He kept track of every woman that died as they were taken to the morgue and they were having an autopsy. The same doctors and nurses who were delivering the babies were performing the autopsies. And as they left the autopsy room and came into the delivery room, they were never washing their hands. And so he commanded them, you must wash your hands before you come back into that, that delivery room. And all of a sudden, something so simple changed the way that Vienna, Austria did medical procedures. They began to care about simple things like washing their hands before they delivered a child. And by the year of 1847, an examination found that it was one out of 600 women who were passing away from a different, totally different medical complication during child delivery and you think about that. It, it caught me off guard for a moment because I thought about something so simple being so crucial to the hospital. Something so simple of washing hands would revolutionize medical practices within this grand city of Vienna, Austria. And the way in which Paul writes, he says something so simple as faithfulness in fact, good works as is established here within our text, something so simple can revolutionize a city. Something so simple can bring an adornment to the gospel that revolutionizes churches and communities, nations and world. Something so simple as being faithful can cause dead churches to be alive again. Because what we've seen here within the modern evangelical context, the visible church at large, capital C church, is that many churches are indeed dying. And in a heap of desperation to try to revolutionize or to revive or just to maintain the church, they have gone about it in all the wrong ways. In fact, I would argue that they've gone about it in ways that are contradictory to or even the complete opposite of what the Apostle Paul has called the church to be here in Titus. Because what they've done is they've adopted irreverent worship styles. They've relied on more entertainment, more advertising, more programs. Those may be, if I could categorize them, these might be the least troubling but the more troubling is that churches who are dying have, in an act of def desperation, have compromised to worldly standards, have adopted worldly abominations. They have become what we would call seeker-sensitive, where they strive not to honor God with their worship, but to make the world feel comfortable in their worship. And they've even allowed, and we spent some time on this in Titus chapter 2, They've allowed their emotions, their feelings guide the way that they experience Christ Jesus. 
But the Apostle Paul says for the church not only to survive, but to actually flourish in evil cities like the cities there in the island of Crete, nations like the island of Crete, the world, the way in which the church stands alone and flourishes is by the simple act of faithfulness. And he tells us, doesn't he, that faithfulness looks like a church that is reverent. A church that is full of older men who disciple younger men, who have older men who are godly and sensible. A a, a church that flourishes has older women who are reverent and not gossips. Younger women who love to serve their families. Young men who are sensible in every way. Employees that work hard for their employers and employers who treat their employees with respect and people who submit to the authority that God has established over them. The faithful church is a church that's not doing anything radical in and of itself. It's just simply being faithful to the truths that God has exclaimed in His Word, and the Apostle Paul summarizes them in this way. If you look back at your text, at the, almost the end of verse 8, It says that the faithful church is a church that is devoted to good works. I think this is where the Apostle Paul begins to give his kind of final exhortations here to the church of Crete. Because he is going to say, he is going to argue here in verses 8 through 11, that the way that we impact the wild world, the sin-filled world in which we live, is to dedicate ourselves carefully and accurately to God's Word. That we take God's Word and we understand it and we apply it to our daily living and the worship of the church. And so I want to look at verse 8 and I want to see how the Apostle Paul challenges believers to engage in good works. Now, there's something about this phrase, good works, in the New Testament. It's never mentioned in a negative way. That should matter for us. Good works, as it applies to God's people, is never mentioned in a negative way throughout all of the New Testament. It stands in comparison to things like grace, the gospel, sanctification, the atonement of sins on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ Himself, all of those things are spoken of in the New Testament without any sort of negative connotation. And yet, at the very same time, good works is held in that same standard for the New Testament writers. Good works here, as Paul is writing to Titus, he says this is a trustworthy statement. Now, if you're a good Bible reader, you'll know something about that phrase, a trustworthy statement, especially written by the Apostle Paul, because he uses that same phrase, the trustworthy statement, in 1 Timothy, where he begins to talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. He says, the statement is trustworthy and true, that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. And in the same way that he emphasizes the gospel message of Jesus Christ's death, He says, let me emphasize this for you. The people of God will be a people committed to good works. They'll be a people who are committed 
to living a life of faithfulness. They will be a people committed to obedience according to God's Word. Not in any sort of not of any sort of desire to earn our salvation. Paul doesn't write like that. But he writes in a way that we are committed, devoted to good works out of simple thankfulness for the gospel that has come to us. I don't think that any catechism or creed gets this better than the German catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's question 86. And if you want to look at it while I read it, it's on page 887 in your hymnal. One of the greatest things I think about this new hymnal which we have started using is all the creeds and confessions that are listed within them. But 887 is the first question that starts the third part called gratitude. And question 86 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? What he's saying here is, because we have been saved, not according to anything that we have done to earn it, but by the mere good mercy and grace of our Lord, as He applies the righteousness of Christ to us, as He applies the blood that was shed by Christ to us so that we might be redeemed, why then should we do good works? And here's the answer. Because Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, is also renewing us by His Spirit into His image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for His benefits, and that He may be praised through us, and further so that we might be assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. The Apostle Paul has hit every single one of those points in this letter. He has told us, look back at the answer if you have your hymnals open. He has told us of the gospel of God that has redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has spoken to us about the sanctification in which the Spirit brings conforming us into the Son's image. He has shown us how we are to live as a thankful people, thankful for the work of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and the benefits that we receive because of the gospel. And he has told us that by our good works, by our faithfulness, God will be praised. And our neighbors might be won over to Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, faithfulness, good works, summarizes itself in these ways that we are a thankful people, thankful for the blood in which Christ has shed, thankful that the gospel of God has saved us, has redeemed us, is sanctifying us, will bring us to glory. And through our good works, we can be adornments of the gospel of God. You notice, though, as the Apostle Paul writes here in verse 8, even as our, our catechism question that we just read together, you notice who he is writing to. Paul is not writing to the world. He is writing to those who have believed. He, he's writing to those who profess to be Christians. 
And, and the point that the Apostle Paul is trying to make here to his disciple Titus is just because one professes Christ with his mouth does not mean that he will go and do good works. The Apostle Paul knows that there's something in the island of Crete that we experience today. Hypocrites. That they profess Christ with their mouth and yet they do not honor His commands. And the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6 through 6, in the kind providence of the Lord, I got to teach through this in our Sunday school class this morning, that those who profess Christ with their mouth and yet do not do what He commands, they are liars. And they do not practice the truth. The Apostle Paul wants us to know if we profess Christ with our mouth, we will be a people who are devoted, engaged to be careful about doing good works. And that be careful language is so interesting to me because it's here that he is saying not, not this idea of be careful as in there's danger in doing good works. He's saying be careful about doing good works be thoughtful about what you are doing. And so you begin to ask yourselves those testing questions. Is this good and profitable? Not to the greater good. Not to myself. But is this good and profitable to my Lord? Does this decision glorify God? Would my Father in Heaven look upon what I am doing and consider it a good work? Is what I'm doing, the decisions that I'm making, is it adorning the Gospel as the Apostle Paul writes in Titus chapter 2? Is the way that I'm conducting myself as a church member, as an elder, as a deacon, as a father, as a mother, as a grandparent, as an employer, as an employee, as a member of the, as a citizen, a member of this state, this country, as a member, as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ as a whole, is what I'm doing glorifying Christ? Am I making a statement for Jesus in the way that I am going about my works? Because, beloved, only when it is glorifying to God may it be considered good. Remember what I said right when we began to look at verse 8. That good works is never mentioned in the New Testament with a negative connotation. Works by itself is mentioned almost entirely in a negative connotation. Your works cannot save you. Your works that do not glorify Christ will cause the people that surround you to hate the gospel, to hate Christianity, to hate the faith that we profess. The world hates a hypocrite. In a world that you know, allows us to, to be who you are and determine your own path and, and to be true to yourself, it's, it's amazing to me in this, this postmodern, subjective world that, that what the world hates most is a hypocrite. And so the Apostle Paul, knowing that there's many parallels between the island of Crete and the society in which we live in today is sin-filled. The way that we can really blaze a trail for the Lord Jesus is to seek first His glory by doing good works. And he gives us a little commentary in verses 9, 10, and 11. If you look at verse 9, 
It says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, this seems strong-worded by the Apostle Paul, and it's supposed to. This is not the Apostle Paul, you know, bringing any sort of uh, judgment upon you if you've swabbed your cheek and sent your DNA in to Ancestry.com. That's not what he is it's not what he's discussing at all. He is discussing these haphazard, well, let's just use his word, unprofitable and worthless arguments within the household of faith. You see, what happens in places like the island of Crete, better yet, what happens in places like our society and our culture in which we live in today where everything is subjective and everyone's viewpoints of religion should be, you know, respected and and held in high honor what happens is that you begin to disagree and so in these disagreements there are many different arguments and controversies that exist within the church within the household of faith and so this subjective just be true to yourself paul says that cannot exist in Christ's church Paul actually says that all these worthless and unprofitable discussions and controversies, they don't have a place in Christ's church, that they're dangerous, that they lead God's people astray. And so as a church, the Apostle Paul saying in the foundational blueprints of what the church ought to be is that there has to be a careful guard against theological discussions that are not biblically sound and true. God is calling us to be a people who are one-track-minded, if you will. We're Bible people. We're people of the book. The Bible is going to be our limitations. The Bible is going to be our guardrails. The Bible is going to be our God. We don't have to be inventive. We don't have to just make up our mind on the spur of the moment and go with what feels good. No, we get to be a people of the book. Because what happens here when you begin to give yourself over to foolish controversies and these unprofitable and worthless discussions is that the people of God now come to the church to argue and not to learn. To discuss things that are no benefit to their own souls that are actually worthless to the mission of God through the church. And so Paul says we have to avoid these discussions. We have to avoid these controversies. They're absolutely foolish. They're absurd. We must be a people who are guided, directed, limited, guarded by the book, the Word. And so we have to give our attention only to what the Word says is true. All these hypotheticals, all these arguments that are foolish and mundane and worthless we cannot pay any attention to them because they're taking our eyes off of the mark we might say they're taking our eyes off of what the true focus is as a people of God which is the gospel of Jesus Christ the message that we are to take into a lost and dying world and to live out before our neighbors and he actually in verses 10 and 11 takes this idea maybe this general idea and makes it very specific to people look back at verses 10 and 11 he says as for a person who stirs up division 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. And so, Paul's saying that churches can't be free-for-alls. Therefore, not only what must we guard ourselves and direct ourselves by the Word of God, but we must do away with those people who would seek to bring harm to the church. It, it, it's, if you notice, the English translation doesn't do it justice, I don't think, but, but if we were to look at how verse 9 leads us into verses 10 and 11, Paul talks with some very sobering words in verse 9, but he gets very pointed in verses 10 and 11. One of the things I love most about the Apostle Paul is how pointed he can get in his language. You look at it in verse 10. A person who stirs up division in the church, you warn them once and then you warn them twice and then you have nothing to do with him. It, literally, what the original Greek says here is that you reject him. It, and that might seem bothersome to you, but Paul is using a biblical a biblical foundation for this argument. If you just keep your finger in Titus chapter 3 and turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. Turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, starting in verse 15. Here's where Paul is getting this biblical principle of warning him once and then twice, and then after the third time you have nothing more to do with him. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Here's what the Lord Jesus Himself says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's the first. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, take it to the church. That's two. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What the, what the Lord Jesus is saying here is that you don't count them a part of you. Meaning... Now, if they don't listen the first time or the second time, you reject them. You, you treat them as an unbeliever. One of the things that is so sobering to me when I'm attending Presbytery is when we're examining new ministers and there is a book of discipline within our Book of Church order in which it highlights for us these implications of Matthew chapter 18 and Titus chapter 3 and it and there's a very sobering question that's asked. In church discipline, if he doesn't listen the first time or the second time, what are we to do on the third time? And the book of church order, and each candidate knows it well, says we are to treat them as unbelievers. And that's a sobering statement. And yet that's the principle that's set up here for us in Titus chapter 3. Because we have warned him once, and then we have warned him twice, and then we are to have nothing more to do with him. What the Apostle Paul is telling us as a church, what is foundational to us as a church, is to guard ourselves from wickedness. 
to guard ourselves from false teachers, to guard ourselves from men who are perverted and sinful in mind. And that word perverted in 11 is translated in the ESV as warped. It's this idea that he is completely twisted in his thinking. And so if they are getting the gospel of God wrong, banish them. Banish them. They have no place within the church. Because what is going to happen, you go back to verse 9, the church then is going to be concerned with foolish controversies. It's going to be full of dissension. It's going to be full of quarrels. And all of those things, when it comes to the mission of God through His church, are unprofitable and worthless. The thing that is to be guarded by the people here As Paul writes to Titus, and Titus carries this message to the believers in the island of Crete, he is saying, we must guard our church. It's the same way in which parents guard a family. Or a business owner guards his business. The church is to be guarded and is to be single-minded in their pursuit of holiness, in the way in which they preach the gospel, in the way in which they worship, so that we will not be full of men who are warped and sinful and self-condemned. Here it is that the Apostle Paul is, is emphasizing the message in which he has already established in this letter up to this point. That a people of God, a church of Christ, will be a people who bring about beauty to the gospel. And anything that distracts us from that, the Apostle Paul says, anything that distracts us from the grace and mercy of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and pursuing holiness is to be eradicated from our communion so that we might be of one mind and one focus, so that we might be united, as the Apostle Paul writes, under one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and so that we might pursue good works together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this word. And even though, Lord, it's full of sobering words and words that are pointed in nature, yet may we take them seriously, knowing, Lord, that these are principles established by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that the elders of the church has the keys to the kingdom, and whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And so, Lord, may we pay careful attention to the flock of Christ, the church of Christ. May we guard it from error. May we lock arm in arm together pursuing righteousness so that we might show forth good works to one another, to our neighbors, and to our world. Lord, use this word to encourage us where it ought to encourage us, convict us where it ought to convict us for thy sake and thy glory. We pray these things. Amen.